What you are about to hear is part one in a series on one woman. I don't do this very often, but this story needs to be told, and it's a difficult one to hear. So if you have young children nearby, my suggestion is that this is not for their ears. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. Picture this. You're married to your high school sweetheart, you've got three beautiful children, and you're the CEO of a thriving business you created together. Until one day when you start receiving inaudible messages, a calling. You try to shake it off, but the messages just keep on coming. A crushing depression hits you, and you literally cannot will yourself to get out of the car and walk into your office. What happens next is stunning. And first, as you listen to this, it's going to break your heart. And then it will lift you up and remind you of the power of the human spirit to rise, even if it is broken in two. Her name is Dawn Kohler, and these days, she's an in-demand executive coach specializing in awakening the self you were meant to be. Her book is called The Messages, and this is part one of her story. Dawn, welcome to the show. Thank you, Candy. Thank you very much for coming all this way. And I just have already really enjoyed meeting you. Oh, thank you so much. We're sitting here in your beautiful living room. And as I came around the corner here in this beach town in California, I saw the Pacific Ocean for the first time on my trip. It's beautiful. Like I said, it never gets old, never gets boring. It's magic. I finished your book last night. And uh, Dawn, I have to be honest, I had trouble sleeping last night because of the pain of what you have been through. The book is written through the lens of a conversation with your youngest daughter, Katie, on the eve of your oldest daughter, Jen's wedding. So let's start soft and easy. Let's start in your happy place. We all want to talk about our children, right? You have three of them. Tell us a little bit about them. Absolutely. They're just wonderful human beings. And even when they were children, I very much ascribed to the idea of just don't mess them up. They have a path. They've got something to do here. Keep the borders, keep the boundaries, love them, keep them safe, but let them be who they're going to be. And who they turned out to be was just beyond anything I could imagine. Two girls and a boy. How far apart are they each? About two years in between them. It must have been a little crazy when they were babies then, right? Three children under the age of five was a little (laughs) bit crazy, I must say. But, you know, I love crazy. So (laughs) that type of multitasking really worked for me. You married your childhood sweetheart, Jeff. Tell us a little bit about him. Oh, Jeff. (laughs) Oh, Jeff. (laughs) I always have to laugh with Jeff because I've known Jeff since the seventh grade. At that time, we were the same height, the same weight, and our hair was the same length. He was very funny, very playful, very kind of gangly. And I thought, "Mm, no, I wasn't really interested in him. It was years later until I actually became interested. But at the time, what I saw was just a very gangly teenage boy that you know made a lot of inappropriate jokes. <laughs> but like gum on the bottom of your shoe, he just kept sticking around, right? He did. He did. Well, interesting story about Jeff and I. We had started dating actually when we were 15. He was 16. We went to college, got out of college, and then went to work for two separate computer companies up in the Bay Area. I was on the Oakland side. He was on the other side of the bridge. And then one night we were going to company events. And I said to him, I go, I'm not going to be home tonight. And he said, that's fine. I'm not going to be home either. And we went to the Fairmont in downtown San Francisco. It was the top floor. 
And I get up to the elevator and I walked in the room and there he was. Jeff was at the corner and I thought, what are you doing here? And he looked at me kind of the same way. Well, the owner of his company and the owner of my company stood up and said, these two companies are merging. And we just looked and shook our heads and went, what are the odds? We had been dating for eight years. We're, you know, 21, 22 at the time. And anyway, that's kind of how it started. He and I started working for the same company. We were selling PCs at the time that you couldn't put them on the desktop quick enough, yet nobody was servicing them. And our customers, large companies like the Gap, the B of A, they're saying, we can't wait three hours for the computer to come back. You know, we want somebody on site today. And that service wasn't provided. It was a natural niche that emerged. And he and I said, you know what? Why don't we try to start this company? You were the CEO. Mm -hmm. Tell us, what did you learn about leadership as a young woman in the corner office back in the day? Were you taken seriously? I was absolutely taken serious because everybody we hired was under the age of 30. At that time, when computers were introduced and they were becoming sort of uniform in the office, the older generation had no idea how to use them. No idea. No idea. So we were up to 50 employees and truly nobody was over the age of 30. It was a very different dynamic. Women that are in the workforce, women that I coach today that are dealing with bosses that have, you know, are 30 years older and have been in the industry for 30 or 40 years, I never had that experience. I very much was granted authority based on age at the time. <laughs> I might have been 28, and they thought, well, she must know what she's doing. In your memoir, you say that you were, quote unquote, born a worker. So I guess it's kind of in your DNA. Growing up here in California, you always had a job as a teenager. Tell us about those jobs. Well, my very first job was at SeaWorld. I was in popcorn too, have a whale of a day. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I loved it. I actually lied. I got a social security number because I wasn't old enough to get a job. And then after that, I bagged groceries. I worked for a laboratory where I ran everybody's specimens and blood around from the labs to the hospitals and back. I prided myself in my own money, and I didn't want to take any money from my parents. They were doing well enough, but it was just a, a sense of pride. I wanted to be on my own, making it on my own. Speaking of going to college and grad school, I know during grad school, you got your real estate license so that you could pay for your own education, which is pretty admirable, I think. I had to wait until I was 18 to go in and test because you had to be 18. So I studied and then went in the day after my 18th birthday and got my real estate license and Coldwell Banker hired me. And I, I think I was the youngest person that Coldwell Banker had ever hired. Tell me about your experience going to college. Where did you go to school, grad school too? And did you know what you wanted to do with your life? I wanted to be a journalist. I admired Barbara Walters. Oh, I God rest her, right? I, exactly. I wanted to interview interesting people. I thought that what she did was fascinating, and that's what I wanted to do. So I went into college. My first year was actually at Sacramento State because they had a fantastic journalism major. I went as a journalist major and failed terribly. I had a couple of professors that just returned my papers like they had had a nosebleed on them. And it was all about my grammar and my spelling and nothing about the content. And I just mm -hmm. thought, I don't have what it takes. Not only did I not have what it took, but the criticism caused such total deep shame in me. 
And I didn't understand what that shame was about. I just thought, I can't tolerate this. One of the tortures of being in radio and television is called the air check, which is where you get off the air and you sit down with your boss and he plays a tape of every single thing you said while you're on the air and criticizes you for it. It's a daily pain in the butt. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that would have taken me down at the time. <laughs> so let's go back to the entrepreneur piece for you. Back then, how would you have described the most successful key features of an entrepreneur? Determination. You just can't stop. When we decided to start the company, we put a business plan together and thought, okay, well, we need to raise $100,000 to get this thing underway. So I put on my banker's suit. I was thrown out of every bank. I had shaken. I bet you looked great though, Don. <laughs> you know, back then it was the shoulder pads course. Oh, Everybody yes. looked like they walked out of dynasty. So then I had shook all the family trees, tried to get some money out of everybody. And after three, six months, I'm, I'm not sure how long it was, I'd only raised $15,000. We all went to a little bar down in La Jolla called Bullies. And we sat down there and thought, we're going to get a beer. We're going to drink our sorrows away and be done with this business because there's no way we can start it. And all of a sudden, I looked across and I saw my second grade teacher. And I thought, what is she doing here? So I had this energy that came up inside of me and it said, go talk to her. Three times that happened. And finally, I thought, this is so irritating. I'm going to go say hi to her just so this goes away. I get up. I go across the bar, I introduce myself, and she said, oh, yes, I remember you, I remember your family. And she said, let me introduce you to my husband. And she turns and introduces me to a gentleman named Robert Ball. And he said, hi, I'm Robert Ball. And the conversation went on very quickly. We found out that he was the CEO of a high-tech company in Sereno Valley, and he wanted to hear all about our business that we were trying to start. Fast forward, he said, I'm very interested in this. Come see me on Monday morning. On Monday morning, we walked into his office. An hour later, we had a deal. And he co-signed a line of credit for $150,000, gave us office space in Orange County that was already up and running with phones and a, an assistant. And we were in business the following week. You asked for it and the universe returned it to you. It happened. It was one of those moments you look in your life and you go, yeah, that was meant to be. There were plaques on the wall at work in your office, entrepreneur of the year, as you've said, 50 plus employees. And one day you and Jeff are married. You've got three small children. You experience a shift in your life. You call it a knowing, a calling. Take us back to that moment. I literally woke up and it felt like my whole body was tingling with some sort of information. And I closed my eyes and I thought, what is this? because it was circling in my chest. I was, there was kind of a buzz. And by this undeniable knowing, and, and I have to say it was primordial. I, I don't have any kind of religious background for this. I was receiving a calling. And I just went, okay, what am I supposed to do? At the time, I didn't want to receive a calling. It scared me. I knew I was being asked to do something, but I really wanted to continue with life as I knew it. So I thought, well, maybe I could just get rid of the energy. Maybe I could run it off. So I, I had the kids in the double stroller, and I'm running them up and down the hills, and then I'd get back, and then I'd jump in the pool and swim. I, I was just trying to get rid of it. 
And it obviously didn't go away. It just wore me down until I ended up that morning in the car when I drove to work and my body just said, this is no longer your way. You cannot go this direction any longer. And I was unable to get out of the car. And unable to go back to work. Things got darker and darker. There were times when you couldn't move. You couldn't even get out of your bed. Your husband finds a business card in the back of your minivan from a psychotherapist named Anne. And this begins a journey for you. Your therapy sessions with her, she asks about your parents. And isn't it interesting? Isn't that where they always start? Tell me about your mother. Tell me about your father. And you were thinking, okay, I'm happy to tell you about my mother and my father. But for our audience, give us a little background on where your parents come from, what they did for a living. Well, my mother is from Hatfield Bottom, West Virginia, where the Hatfields and the McCoys feuded. She is one of 16 children, and she's probably the 13th, but they wouldn't have ever (laughs) declared a 13th child, so I think she came in 14th. So she is truly a coal miner's daughter, which makes me a coal miner's granddaughter, I suppose. He was in the coal mines, died of black lung disease, carried the canary down in the mines. My grandmother on that side was completely illiterate, did not have more than a seventh grade education, and gave birth to all of her children at home. Six of her children died before the age of three. And the only book she knew because she memorized it, she couldn't have read it, was the Bible. Tell us a little bit about your father and his family. My father is one of four children. He grew up in Ohio, extremely German. We don't talk, we don't feel, huge work ethic. His mother was a stout Catholic and he went to church Every single day he he went to Mass. That's the one thing I can remember my father always telling me, how much he hated going to church every day. (laughs) You also uh, have siblings. Tell me about them. Yes, I do. I have three siblings. I have an older brother, a younger brother, and a younger sister. I can't tell you I really know them, and I can't tell you that they really know me. We lived in a family of such covert dysfunction. My younger brother and I fought terribly and daily, I can remember fighting with him just because I wouldn't let anybody ever touch me. And I would fight him because I wanted the touch. I wanted human touch. Mm. So, you know, poor guy would walk in the door and I'd wrestle him down to the ground. (laughs) And I remember thinking I just needed to feel somebody else's skin until he got old enough. And then he hit me very hard and we never touched again. (laughs) At one point, you explained to Anne in your therapy sessions that you raised yourself. Mm What did you mean by that? I knew from a very young age that particularly my mother was not equipped to raise me and that I was on my own. You know, my father was a dictator in the house. We did whatever he said. I just knew in my heart, I'm on my own here. Nobody's helping me. Nobody's helping me with school. Nobody's helping me know me. Nobody is here for me. You described an energy that was hovering over your chest. Mm -hmm. And in your therapy session with Anne, she explained something that I think the whole audience needs to hear. Here's a quote. She said, your mind is trying to tell you something and it's using your body to get your attention. I love that quote. And I love it when I heard her speak that because it made so much sense. I thought, yes, my body was trying to communicate to me. I felt that very deeply. And my soul was trying to communicate Mm. to me. All of this information, 
I used to think, you know, we have a mind and we have a body. Our body is a mind. Yes. And it, as the story reveals itself and as I learned more, so much of who I was and what I went through was in my body. It Trapped was coming there. up through different parts of my body. Well, let's get into it. Anne used a process with you called guided meditation. Mm -hmm. And she took you back to a particular age when you closed your eyes where you went was being five years old. And there was a lot for you to learn mm -hmm. about that five-year-old. There was. I had really blocked out so much. I blocked out that time of my life. I blocked out so much of who I was. It's like you have these horrible experiences and some part of your mind says, we're just going to shut this out of your awareness. Mm. We're going to tuck this away. We're going to just hold on to this until you can get to a place where you can actually process it. I guess it was my time to finally be able to process it. I was in a good place in my marriage. I was in a steady home with children that I loved and that loved me. And for whatever reason, my mind was like, it's time. It's, it's time to understand these truths about yourself and, and what you went through. You know, one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading your book was that your oldest, Jennifer, mm -hmm. was just about to turn five years old. Mm -hmm. And the trauma that happened to you was when you were five years old. Right. And I think there's such a strong mother-daughter connection right. that seeing her at five reminded you of five. And a lot of this stuff started to bubble up with help from the guided meditation. Mm -hmm. Can you share with our audience what happened to you? Yes. It was right before her fifth birthday that I started remembering what happened to me right before my fifth birthday. And the memories that were coming together, I believe because I trusted Anne so much, and I finally felt like I was in a place where I could be contained. Somebody could hold me somebody could understand it, and I could allow myself to know this. As difficult as it was, it started to emerge. It emerged with Jeff, my husband, one night. We were about to get intimate, and as he came to kiss me, I just all of a sudden saw him as my father. I threw him off of me. I started shaking. I was trembling. And the memory of me at five years old came to be. It was a common occurrence for my father to take me on Saturday mornings with him. And we would go to construction trailers because he was in the, the construction business. We would go to his office. We would go to these various different places. And at the time, it was, in my mind, as the memories came, it was playful. Of course, it was sexualized, but it wasn't angry. It was, this is this fun thing I do with dad that makes me special in his eyes. And I'm different from all the other kids. And he loves me more than mom. And I felt like he was my boyfriend almost. Even at five, you can romanticize these things. Mm. And so it was, this makes me special and I have this special relationship. And I was literally in love with my father, as inappropriate as all that is. Then I had told my mom that I didn't want to go that one particular day. And I don't know why, whether I sensed the tone of anger in his voice, but I'd gone to her and I said, I don't want to go to the store with dad. And she said, if your dad wants you to go, you go. Once we got in the car, he was very angry. And he took me down a canyon that day and put me in the backseat and I was raped. 
Now, the memory of that rape, which is common, I saw it from the roof of the car. My mm-hmm. perspective was looking down. You'd left your body. I'd left my body. And so you're looking at it and recalling this from the roof of your car where I'm seeing my dad and I'm seeing my body, but I wasn't in it. That break from self is such a difficult wound to heal, the dissociated self, because in the dissociated self, your biggest enemy is you. The memories that it left behind, the scars, the tainted sense of shame, that's all in your body. And to try to get back into your body, to try to live a normal life, you have to, because if you don't, you'll be found out. And you can't be found out because these types of abuse tend to come with very severe threats, death threats. You know horrible things are going to happen if people know. Mm. So it's a tremendous secret that this five-year-old had to keep, you know, through my life. You told your mom. What did she say? It was obviously a difficult conversation. She was shocked, obviously. And then I told her, I said, Mom, do you remember this day? And she said, I do remember a day when you came in and you were out with your dad in the car. He had you in the bathroom and you were crying and you said, I need your help. And he told me that he handled it. But she said to me, but I know exactly what you had on that day. And what I remember having on that day and what she remembered I having on this day, which was a little dress with some pink and blue flowers on it. And I said to her, Mom, I can't tell you what my kids had on yesterday, but 30 years later, you and I both remember, and we both remember what I had on that day. Something happened, and this is what it was. She believed me for a minute. She said, you know, Dawn, this is really difficult for me, but you have my 100% support. And three days later, there was an Oprah show on false memories, and boy, there was no, no more support after that. It was, you're having false memories, and your therapist is leading you to believe you've been abused by your father. What about your dad? Did you ever have a conversation with him about this? I did. I forced a conversation with him, and he wouldn't talk to me about it. He said, I'm not going to say anything about this. And then he wrote me a note, and the note basically said, there's nothing anybody can do about the past, and to live your life and all the joy that's in it now, I will remain at a distance wishing you well. This seems like a good place to stop and rest in the story of Don Kohler. But if you are hearing this interview and you are experiencing this kind of sexual abuse, please text HOME to 741-741. This is the Crisis Text Line. And the website is crisistextline.org. You can speak immediately to a volunteer crisis counselor. That's home to 741-741. In part two of this story, the messages, the calling continued for Dawn, including one terrifying message that just kept on repeating. There were more. I will launch that interview next week. You can also find out about Dawn Kohler on her website, dawnkohler.com. D-A-W-N-K-O-H-L-E-R.com. This is Candy O'Terry saying thank you to Dawn for her bravery in telling us this story. 
and thank you for listening. When we share our stories, we provide a roadmap, a way to find our way. When we lift each other up, we all rise. What's your story? I can't wait to hear it.